Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, There's a company that uh, began almost 30 years ago that you may not recognize, but you may have actually used. If you have ever parked your car in a city or at a hotel or at a hospital, its name is Town Park. And uh, it began uh, with a one-man valet parking operation not far from here in Annapolis, Maryland. And over the course of the last 30 years, it has grown to become a nationwide organization of more than 13,000 employees. And uh, one of the reasons for Town Park's rapid growth, I believe, is captured in a story about a hotel in a major city where uh, they were called in to manage guest parking in a nearby garage. But the story got off to a very rocky start. Uh, because it wasn't very long before they started receiving uh, numerous complaints from uh, departing guests, many of whom were threatening never to come back to that hotel again, because the retrieval time of the cars of those departing guests was so low that many of them were left standing in front of the hotel, waiting for the valet to bring them their car, and then missing their meetings, their flights, and their other destinations. And so they started asking themselves, well, what's the problem and what can we do? What can we change to improve this situation? And and so they asked, you know, do we have enough people uh, literally on the job, enough staff to get this done? And and they found that they did. And uh, uh, they wondered whether the uh, valets were, you know, slacking or whether they were, you know, hustling enough and realized that, yes, they were, you know, all working very hard. Uh, One person even wondered whether the real problem had more to do with kind of a lack of courtesy and discovered that they were actually greeting people warmly, opening car doors, giving them water bottles and the whole uh, smash, which resulted in some people of the company concluding that there was nothing they should do to change, that they were already doing everything they could, that it's a problem that they just had to live with. But other people refused to accept that and they kept looking at the options. They went into the garage, and there they discovered a problem relating to the size of the garage in relationship to the number of cars that they had to park, and quickly came to the conclusion that they just had more cars than space in which to park them, which required the valets to block most of the cars in, which then required them to move one or two or sometimes even three cars, just to access the one car of a departing guest. And so they looked at the options and said, well, is is there anything that we could change, anything that we could do? They looked at expanding the garage, but that obviously was not an option. And so for the second time, some people came to the conclusion that there weren't any changes that they should make, that things just were the way they were, and there was nothing more that they could do about it. Some came to the conclusion that people today are just less and less patient in this fast-moving culture that we live in. Others decided to try to solve the problem on the backs of the guests themselves uh, by extending the uh, lead time for requesting the retrieval of your car. But others just wouldn't accept it. And they kept looking for options, until finally somebody came up with an idea that solved the problem and saved the hotel. At the end of the evening, when most of the guests were uh, back in their rooms for the night, the valets would go 
to the front desk of the hotel. And there they would ask for a list of all the guests who were planning to check out the next morning. With the list, they all went into the garage. And in the middle of the night, when the guests were asleep, they all played a giant game of automobile Tetris. <laughs> and they literally reformed and reparked and rearranged all the cars in that garage, reforming the way they would do their work the next day so that in the morning when the guests were checking out, not only were their cars not blocked in, but they were now in the very front row closest to the entrance. Now this cost them some money to do this because they had to hire more valets to get this job done. But because they were willing to pay the price, because they refused to give up, because they kept looking for the next option to serve the people that they were there to serve by doing what they were there to do, that is, park and retrieve cars. The result was the town park's retrieval time in that city went from being the worst to being the very best. And it earned them a whole new reputation, and it resulted in their rapid growth from a one-man valet operation in nearby Annapolis, Maryland, to a nationwide organization employing more than 13,000 people whose motto, get this, is driven to serve. Well, the context for St. Paul's letter to the church in the great city of Corinth was a kind of spiritual gridlock where the leaders of that church and the members of that church were blocking each other and making it hard for that church uh, to move out and to get on with the mission of Christ. Uh, and that took on the form of disagreements over a number of different behaviors and, and practices. And one of those practices had to do with the issue of whether or not it was right or wrong for people to eat the meat of animals who were sacrificed to mythological gods in the pagan temples of Corinth, which I know is completely out of left field for any of us here today. But it was a typical practice. It was routine in the culture at that time. And it was being performed also by some members of the Corinthian church on the grounds that it had nothing to do with their Christianity. They, they were already followers of Jesus. They were members of the church, and this was their way of simply getting dinner and staying close to that local culture as witnesses for Christ. While other people in the Corinthian church thought that this practice was absolutely wrong and that they needed to withdraw from the local culture and maintain their witness for Christ without compromise because they believed that this practice was tantamount to idol worship itself. And so they were in a missional gridlock with each other, and they, and they reach out to none other than their leader, St. Paul, who at this point was uh, off in the city of Ephesus to see if there was anything that could be done to improve the situation. And Paul's response to this uh, request is known to us as 1 Corinthians or his first letter to the church in the city of Corinth, in which he does not endorse the practice of eating food sacrificed to idols. But neither does he say that it's wrong. What he does 
is reform the conversation. What he does is rearrange the priorities of the Corinthian church so that what's at the front and in the center, what's closest to his heart and to the heart of God and to their ability to move out and to go on with the mission that they were given was the issue of, in St. Paul's words, winning people for Christ. After which all the other things, which may not be unimportant, but were then moved back into their proper perspective. And so with respect to this issue of whether or not it was a right or wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols, Paul simply says that in the grace of God, you know, in effect, you are free. You have liberty to do this. But that in the same grace of God, you may choose not to do it. You may refrain from doing it if the practice causes somebody else to be spiritually confused or prevents them from moving forward in their own life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 8, as you heard, St. Paul says, in effect, if meat causes my sister, my brother to stumble, I'll eat no meat. No meat sacrificed to idols, that is, so that none of them will fall. But then in chapter 9, he turns around and, and says, on the, you know, on the other hand, in effect, you know, if there is a, a, some change that I can make, there, there's some behavior that I can perform, something that I can do to win people for Christ, then you better believe that I'm willing to do that too. And so we know, for example, that uh, Paul was a Jewish Christian, a follower of Jesus who came out of Judaism. Uh, who came to believe that we are saved by the obedience of Christ and not our obedience to, you know, hundreds of religious laws. Nevertheless, he says in his letter, to the Jews, I became as a Jew, and I lived under the law, not because I have to, not because it saves me, but because it puts me close to them so that I can win them over for Christ. To the Gentiles, or those who did not come from Judaism, who never lived under hundreds of religious laws, who wouldn't even get that or what it means, he says, I then became as a Gentile, and I engaged their culture, and I acclimated myself to their traditions so that I could win them over. And then in verse 9, he says, as you heard, I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some, all, for the sake of the gospel. Some people would call that approach to ministry, and do call that approach to ministry, wishy-washy. Others would say that that ministry was led by a man who was, if you'll pardon the expression, driven to serve and who is willing to keep the main thing the main thing and to reform behaviors to bring the message of the changeless Christ into a very diverse, rapidly changing world. Now, you know, for the last three weeks, uh, as many of you know, I have been trying to lay a biblical groundwork for a conversation about the future of the mission and ministry of our congregation in the, in the days and the years ahead in anticipation of our membership summit 
uh, next week. And uh, we've been thinking about what it means to, you know, honor the God of our tomorrows and specifically about three things that I believe are absolutely essential to any future that honors God, whether it's, you know, yours as an individual believer or whether it's ours together as a church. Those three things, as you might remember, are reconciliation, replication, and now reformation, reforming our behaviors. Two weeks ago, I mean, we followed a runaway slave who came to Christ through the ministry of St. Paul and dared to believe that he he could go back to the home of his master because he trusted in the power of reconciliation in Christ to turn slave and master into brothers in Christ. We live in a world where there are so many differences that seem to get accentuated more and more every single day. But if the power of reconciliation in and through Jesus can make a slave and a master into brothers in Christ in a world and at a time where slavery was pervasive across the entire Roman Empire, then what can it do when reconciliation is what we're all about? Because it's what we have to be all about. Because where there's no reconciliation, there's no going forward. There's no future as the people of God. And then last week, we stood on that Galilean mountaintop with uh, 11 disciples and the risen Christ when he called them to go into every nation, every culture, every race, every ethnicity, every circumstance in life, and just replicate the blessings of God over and over by showering people with baptismal water, by teaching them uh, the commands of God and, uh, and the new way of life in Christ. Because without replication, we really are one generation away from death. It's true. And today we get to eavesdrop on a little congregational brouhaha going on in the city of Corinth where the people were gridlocked and they couldn't agree on how to get out and go forward as the people of God. And we heard the appeal of their leader to stop, to reform, to make the main thing, the main thing, after which everything else will then fall into its proper perspective. You know, I know people, you know people who are stuck spiritually. You know, and they're not going forward because, you know, of the, you know, the way they've maneuvered, the way they've parked their life, or because of, of something that's blocking them or holding them in. They're churches that are stuck because of their refusal to reform and rearrange the way they do the things they do in order to bring this message that will never change, that must never change, into the changing world for its hope and its salvation and its new life in Christ. But where there is reconciliation in and through Jesus, and that's what we're about, where there is a replication of the blessings of God in and through your life and the life of our church, in this chain reaction of grace, where there is a willingness to reform and rearrange our behaviors in order to win people with the changeless good news of the Savior of this world, when that's our reputation, 
That's what we're known for. Then our future, though unknown, our pathway as yet untrodden, will absolutely hold the blessing and the power of the Lord of life and the ability and the grace to grow the kingdom of God here and wherever we are sent in our generation, in time, and for all eternity, because that's what he did for us. He came, and he found me where I was, stuck in sin. And by his grace, his sacrifice, he set us free to live a new life and to go out and to go on by the power of Christ in this world. And so, you know, call me stubborn. Many have. But as far as we've come, by the grace of God, I cannot accept that we've done everything we can possibly do. And so today I give thanks for all the people down through all the generations who would not give up who kept on looking at the options and the next one after that and the next one after that, who were willing to pay the price, sometimes refraining from personal preferences that weren't even wrong, sometimes changing in order to do new things they've never done before, because we have been blessed by the goodness of God. And our call, our mission, is to break free by his power and go out into this world and bring others to the one who turns the world upside down and breaks into our hearts and changes our lives forever, no matter what we're called to do or where we're called to go. May God bless you as a follower of Christ, and may all of us together as the family of God always be driven to serve the God of all our tomorrows in all the tomorrows that are yet to be for the family of God here at St. Andrew. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.